Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Let's uh, take, a, take our Bibles and let's go to John chapter 18, and we're going to continue with uh, the conversation that Jesus had with Pilate. We've been dealing with conversations with Jesus um, in the Gospel of John, and uh, we're, we've come down to the trial. There's a few more personal conversations that we'll see in the book of John, but uh, we're coming down the stretch a little bit. And we're, we're seeing Jesus here standing trial before the religious leaders and before Pilate, and uh, he's getting ready to go to the cross. And I was thinking about this, that the crucifixion is both awful and it's majestic. And if we look at what Jesus has said about it, he talks about his crucifixion. What's the, what's the uh, description that Jesus often gives of his crucifixion in John? Anybody know? He talks about what? Lift it up, lift it up, and, and being glorified. And, and he sees that, he sees this as a majestic thing, even though I know he knows the awfulness of what it's going to be. It's awful because of what happened to him uh, in order for our salvation to be purchased and for him to overturn the power structures of the world. But but it's also majestic because of what he accomplished through it. And it's majestic also as we watch Jesus because of how he, how he handled himself in that situation. And I think as we, we look at that, we see the beauty of what it is, and we ought to be inspired by it as well. And so as we're looking at this, let's, uh, let's read um, John 18. We'll start at verse... Oh, what verse did we start at here? Verse 28 and following. We'll go through chapter 9, verse 15. And we dealt with some of this last week, so this is the second portion of that. It says, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonially, uh, ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. And so Pilate came out and uh, to them and he asked them, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But they said, but we have no right to execute anyone. This took place to fulfill what Jesus said about the kind of death that he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace. He summoned Jesus and he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Uh, Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he 
went out again to the Jews gathered there, and he said, I find no basis of charge against him. But your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, uh, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Pilate heard this. He was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not, if it were, if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over is guilty of the greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known in as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And so uh, tonight I just wanted to go through and look at uh, our outline a little bit, where we are so far. In uh, chapter 18, verse 28 through 32, we talked about last week the indictment. This is the Jewish leaders bringing Jesus before Pilate to ask him to do something with him. And so there's the indictment. They've already had their uh, their trials of Jesus, and they found him guilty based on uh, their law. We don't hear a lot about that in John's gospel. We hear it in the other gospels. Uh, we hear about the false witnesses coming in. For John, he only tells us about Caiaphas, the high priest's father-in-law, asking a few questions and getting the gist of, of who Jesus is and and trying to find out more information so they really can bring him to trial. But we don't hear about the Caiaphas thing. Why do you think that is? We talked about it last week. I wonder if we remember why maybe Caiaphas isn't mentioned in John. Yep. Yeah, and we we can't we can't know for sure why. The Holy Spirit's leading John, but it seems to me uh, reasonable to to think that okay the other gospels have covered that John's writing much later uh, he doesn't need to go over that material again he tends to think about things or bring out things through the leadership of the Holy Spirit that other 
the other Gospels don't bring up. And so uh, the visit with Annas isn't prominent in the other Gospels, and so he brings that out. Okay? Um, so he's brought to Caiaphas. And then there's an inquest. There's some questions that, uh, excuse me, Annas. There's some questions that Annas asks, and then uh, he comes before Pilate, and Pilate uh, makes this proposal in verses 38 through 40. What's the proposal? To release a prisoner. I want to release to you a prisoner. It's our our custom to do that. Uh, And Pilate probably thinks, I think he thinks that they're going to ask for Jesus to be released. But after all, they're the ones that brought him. And so what do they do? They ask for Barabbas. Do you remember what the name Barabbas means? Uh, okay, so son of the father, son of the father, which is kind of ironic because who's the son of the father in this story? It's Jesus, right? Jesus is the son of the father. And so we have, uh, we have Jesus coming before and taking the place of Barabbas. And that brings us really up to uh, this next section, and we could call this one in verses 1 through 3, abuse, that abuse was poured out upon Jesus. Okay, look at verse 1 with me. He asked for, in at the close of chapter 18, for one person to be given, and, and they call for Barabbas. And so Jesus takes, or excuse me, Pilate takes Jesus and has him flogged, has him flogged, or uh, scourged him. And so it's Pilate that asked for this to take place. I thought uh, you might find this interesting. Here's uh, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 through 7. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. He's not going to be disgraced despite these things happen. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. So here there's a flogging that takes place. And you can see um, from some of the words the how this all plays out. The Roman corporal punishment had three different forms. And uh, let's just talk about this for a moment. What uh, language does the Roman government use primarily? Latin? Okay. Okay. How about uh, the general public? Greek? Okay. How about the Jewish people? Aramaic? And there's another one. Hebrew. There's a mixture. They use a mixture of those languages. And so these uh, these terms that we're going to see, they're in Latin, but then we'll see the Greek word that's used. And so this first one, I don't even know how to pronounce this right, but fustigatio, and it typically means beating. And so if you just wanted to punish somebody and there's no further uh, punishment that's going to happen, this may be the first thing that takes place, is that uh, there's a beating that uh, is ordered as part of the punishment. Okay, this one is flogging. All right, the English words don't necessarily, they're not exactly equivalent to these things, but this would be like a, a, a this would be more severe than the first one. All right. And then the third one would be uh, verberatio, I'm guessing. Okay, and this either means severe flogging or scourging. And the Greek form of this is mastigo'o. Okay. And uh, this is the term that John uses here. And some think that maybe um, it could be referring to the second one. And the reason that they would do that 
is that it's not Pilate's intention to kill Jesus, and usually the person receiving this third form is somebody that's getting the death penalty. Um, but it seems like this uh, this Greek form more matches this third area. This Greek word would match that third area more than it would the second. Uh, according to Milne, a uh, Bible scholar who's written a commentary on this. So he thinks that maybe this is dealing with the third one and that Pilate does intend to, um, to, to, to scourge Jesus and to take him to the very edge, but he doesn't really want to kill him. And so he's thinking maybe this will satisfy the bloodlust of the crowd that they have towards Jesus. Uh, NIV has for this, they took him and flogged him in verse 1, KJV scourged. Uh, New English translation, flogged severely. And then the NLT uh, translates this word, uh, mastigo'o here, as flogged with a lead-tipped whip. Okay, so what they've done is they've gone beyond what the Greek words say, except they've uh, translated and interpreted what's implied. What's implied is that there's been a beating with a certain kind of whip. Okay, here's uh, what this whip might have looked like. Uh, we've often heard, I always heard growing up, that it was done with the cat of nine tails. Um, we can't be certain of that. No Bible verse says the cat of nine tails. Uh, cat of nine tails would have been something that would have been invented later on. But there were, there was a, a whip that had bones and steel that were woven into it. And so what the intention of that was, was to tear at flesh. And this is the kind of thing that would have been used in the beating of Jesus. So we see these three forms. And uh, Pilate had ordered them to take Jesus away and to beat him uh, in, in this way, to scourge him. And we know from uh, different writings that people sometimes died because of the flogging in this way, that they didn't even make it. If there was going to be a crucifixion, they didn't even make it to the crucifixion because the beating was so severe uh, that it often caused them to bleed out. It was severe enough to rip a person's uh, body open, to cut muscle uh, and sinew to the bone. It was carried out with a whip that had these fragments of bone or pieces of metal. And from Josephus in the Jewish wars, we hear that on some occasions these beatings were so severe that, that bones and organs were left exposed. So you can imagine the nastiness of what's taking place in this beating that was ordered for Jesus. So it says in verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they clothed him in a purple robe, and they went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. And so they're mocking him. They're mocking the Lord. And they don't realize, as often people don't, um, that he really is the King of the Jews, that he really is the Lord. Sometimes appearances can be deceiving. Here stands a man before them that looks like he's weak and frail, that doesn't look majestic to them, that looks like a, a mock king. But if there's one thing that Christianity ought to teach us, that Christ ought to teach us, is that you can't always base things on appearances. Like, for example, right now, it looks like the world is winning in its battle against God, doesn't it? 
Nobody wants to say that because you feel like you might be letting God down. But isn't it true that it seems like the power rests with those that have the most influence? But looks can be deceiving. God is doing something. God is working behind the scenes. He's working in unseen ways. He's working in the hearts and lives of people. And things are happening in our world. And one day, as the Bible says, the kingdoms of our world will be the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he'll rule forever and ever. And so you can't judge based on appearances alone, because in a night, things can change. Just ask Babylon, right? Overnight, they were overthrown. Okay, so verse 4 and 5, we have a verdict that comes out. Look at verse 4 with me. Once more, Pilate came out. Why is he coming in and out? Let's uh, think back, maybe just from our reading already you remember this he's going in and he's he's going in and then he's coming back out what's the purpose of all that he's trying to find a way to get out of it that's true right so the jewish people who were there they didn't want to become unclean why would they why would they become unclean or did they think they would to go into the house of a gentile right they thought if i do that I'll make myself unclean. And uh, to me, this kind of sinks in really heavily that a lot of times the things that we think will make us unclean maybe won't, and then there are things that we think won't that will. Okay, so if they could truly be unclean by stepping into a Gentile's house, what does that say about Jesus who's on the inside? Then he would be unclean, but he's not unclean. Right? He's not unclean just because he went. So it tells us the traditions of men have been extended to the place of a, a law. And I think that we need to be aware of things like that. That uh, in terms of Jesus, he doesn't become unclean by touching things. When he touches things, they become clean. It changes how things are. Um, so he, of course, is inside and. Pilate comes in to talk to him, and he goes out to talk to the Jewish leaders. The irony of that is who's really the holy one? Jesus is the holy one. And who's really sinful? It's those that are on pretension are putting themselves outside. We don't want to touch evil, but they've got it in their hearts. Can you see that? Jesus, who looks like he's touching evil by being in the Gentile house, is actually the only pure one in the story. And I think that's phenomenal, that we ought to realize that it's not just appearances. There's a reality to these things. I think we know that. So Pilate's going in and out. Once more, Pilate came out, and he said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis of charge against him. Okay, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here's the man, echo, echo homo in, in Latin. Here's the man, behold the man. And, uh, of course, he wants to present Jesus as clean and um, not clean but innocent. And uh, they appeal to him. Look at verse 7 with me, verses 6 and 7. It says here, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify Crucified. Do you think that uh, seeing him dressed as a king probably sparked them a little bit more? Like, this man is not our king. Emphatically, he's not our king. And so, Pilate appeals to them, 
and they insisted uh, that he be crucified. And then in verse 7, the Jewish leaders insist, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Okay, and so I think here in verse, maybe I don't have that with me, but in Leviticus 24, uh, refers to the law of Leviticus twenty four sixteen. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them, whether foreigner or native born. When they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. And it tells us here that he claims to be the son of God. And so they see this as blasphemy and they're ready to kill him. You can see the cross references in Matthew twenty six sixty three, uh, John five eighteen, John ten thirty three that he's claimed to be the son of God, they're ready to put him to death. Okay, So uh, they feel that they're justified in doing this. Uh, and the interesting thing about Jesus here is that while others had acknowledged God as father before, we have, uh, I've heard people say, nobody ever acknowledged God as father before. Yeah, yeah, they did, but not in the way that Jesus did, not in the way that Jesus did. No one had done it in such an intimate way that Jesus had by claiming this special intimacy that John has shown from the first couple verses of his gospel and throughout the gospel. Uh, The Jewish leaders rightly understood Jesus, and if uh, what he said was not true, then he would be deserving of death. But what he said is true. He's the Son of God, and so he doesn't deserve what um, what they've convicted him with. So then in verses 8 through 11, we have some questions. Look at verse 8 with me here. It says, when Pilate heard this, that, and what is the this here in verse 8? Which part? Sorry, I got that he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, that's the, that's the antecedent to the this here. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Why do you think he was afraid at this point? I have a, I have a couple options here, and I want you to, and maybe you can think of another option, but think about these for a moment. So he said, um, when he heard this, that he claimed to be the Son of God, he goes back in, and he's afraid. He's even more afraid. Uh, he was afraid because this brings the discussion to a whole new level. For one thing, if Jesus claims to be the Son of God, then what that does is it shows that the Jews are not going to let this go. They're not going to let it go. Okay, It's gone to this it's new level here. Like this is, I can't just talk my way out of this. We're not going to get him released on some technicality. If we don't do something about this, or I don't convince them to let him go, there's going to be a riot. He knows there's a new level here. Okay. Um, and as a Roman, he knew the kind of problems that could come from someone who was claiming that kind of relationship to God. Second thing that it could be here, and I think this is probably the real reason, is that Pilate could have believed something like this, that he really was the son of a god, and if he crucifies him, he would offend that god. Okay, I think this is Pilate's problem, is that 
there's enough in polytheism to allow that this really could be a son of God, that this could be somebody who's come, uh, who's the son of God, who's come in the flesh. And I think Pilate maybe thinks that. Not in the Jewish sense like we think of Jesus, but in another religious type sense that maybe where maybe if I kill this man, I will be offending one of the gods. Not the god, because I don't think he's a monotheist, but I think he thinks he could be offending a deity. And so I think this is what makes him nervous. In addition to this, is there something else that you can remember from the crucifixion story that may be a cause for alarm for Pilate? His wife had a dream, and what was it? Do you remember? Yeah, have nothing to do with this man. He's innocent. And so there's a fear that's growing up around Pilate in regards to this. And so what does he ask? Where do you come from? Are you from heaven? Or are you from earth? Is what kind of person are you? Why do they want to get rid of you? If he can determine where Jesus comes from, maybe he can figure out whether this charge should be taken seriously. Jesus says nothing. Where do you come from? Jesus says nothing. It doesn't it say that right here in verse 9. Okay. Where do you come from? And he said nothing. He gave no answer. Verse 10, do you refuse to talk to me? Do you refuse to talk to me? Don't you realize that I have power either to set you free or to crucify you? Power here is the, a word for ruling authority. And Pilate is claiming now to have some kind of authority over Jesus to crucify him or to set him free. And Jesus' reply here is that you only have power because God granted it. And so this brings us into the providence of God. Like, I don't understand all of this because, and I I don't know that any of us do. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this debate between, um, you know, Calvinists and Arminians. We wouldn't have that. But somehow within the plan of God, there is sovereignty where he knows his purposes and he knows what's going to take place, and there's still free will where people can choose. And God knows how that works. And he's, he's uh, given authority in this situation and brought Jesus to this moment. And yet, listen, everyone who's involved is responsible for their actions. Okay, So Pilate can't, even though he can wash his hands of it, he can't do away with the guilt. And the Jewish leaders who brought Jesus, they can't do away with the guilt. And we who put Jesus on the cross with our sins, we can't do away with the guilt. We're all guilty. And yet God has arranged this to accomplish a purpose. And the thing that occurs to me here as Jesus stands before Pilate is that uh, by all appearances, things are not what they appear to be, right? By all appearances, Jesus is dressed for a mock coronation. He's received a scourging as one who is powerless. He looks to the world ridiculous and maybe even wicked. And I'd like you to think about the appearances here for a moment. First of all, uh, there is the appearance of religion. Uh, And who would be those that appear most religious in this story? The high priests, right? They're wearing 
their priestly robes, right? They, they look religious. They're carrying themselves with a certain religious dignity about them. Okay, would you agree to that? That probably just if we didn't know the details of the story and we came upon this, would you agree with me that probably just from appearances we would think they were the religious ones and Jesus was not? Okay, I'm not asking you to deny your faith by saying that. I'm saying putting ourselves in that scenario, I'm asking us to consider what this must have looked like from the outside. We have the appearance of religion, which turns out to be a sham on the part of the religious leaders. It's not the high priest who is right before God, but it's the one who's being accused of sin, who's wholly innocent. And then you have the appearance of power. Pilate symbolizes the power of Rome and even claims power for himself. And I don't know that you could find up to this point in history a more powerful empire, a more powerful government in all of the world. Would you agree to that? Like, just knowing what you know here, we've got Rome, who's got a vast empire. They've got the uh, military might that stands behind it. They've got Caesar, who's the head of that. And Pilate, in this moment, symbolized the power of Rome and even claims that power for himself. But he's really not the one that's in control of this Story In John 10, 18, previous, obviously, to this, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from the Father. And here he says, You have no power over me if it were not granted from above. You know, though wicked men have made their decisions the purpose of God still being accomplished here. And later when the apostles will preach uh, to the religious leaders and others right in the temple precinct where they would have been, Peter says in Acts two twenty three, after being filled with the Holy Spirit, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And then he says, but... You could repent and be baptized, every one of you, and receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit if you'll, if you'll repent and turn to God with all of your heart. So we know what's really happening here. God is, in Christ, he's setting in place the right king at the right moment in the right way to turn the power of the world and sin on its head. Jesus says, the greater sin is not yours. Does that mean... Pilate has no responsibility for this. He might feel that way, that he's, he's not responsible. But by saying that the greater sin is not yours, does that mean no sin is yours? What do you think? Pilate guilty or not? He's guilty, right, for his part in all of this. Oh. Uh, However, the greater sin, what, what does that mean? Does it mean that here the, the, Jew, the Jewish leaders have done something worse to Jesus? I don't think it's necessarily that. Uh, Pilate is being coerced by the Jewish people, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But I think the reason for the greater sin is because they have greater revelation. Do you understand what I mean by that? To whom much is given, much is required. 
And the greater sin comes from the fact that of all people who should have welcomed the Messiah, it should have been the Jewish people. And of all people in the Jewish nation, it should have been the Jewish leaders who knew the scriptures best. But they didn't. He came to his own and his own received him not, right? They turned him away. And so there is the greater sin is that they have the greater knowledge. And yet it was theirs that was the greater insistence on getting rid of Jesus. I think Pilate with lesser revelation was more compliant and ready to let Jesus go. But something happens that keeps him from doing that. We we hinted to, we hinted on this a little last time, and I tried to set this up a little bit so we could talk about it. I hoped last week, but we didn't get to it. So this week, um, that uh, we talk about the coercion that takes place. You would have no power, Jesus says in verse eleven, unless it was given to you from above. There, therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. From then on, verse 12 says, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Can I tell you that I think here is a great hypocrisy because what they would have really loved, I think, maybe not these religious leaders because they're benefiting from their place within the the nation of Israel. They've got high places and political appointments, and I think because they're the friends of Rome in a certain way that it's it's padded their pockets, and they're benefiting from it. But there's at least a certain element that might have yelled crucify that they would say this, we want no king but Caesar, but they really do want a Jewish king. They really want somebody else to be king, but not Jesus. Are you with me? That there's a hypocrisy here, that they're really not saying what they mean. They're saying the pragmatic thing that will get something done. You, you don't understand what I mean by that? That they're saying whatever they think will help accomplish it. Not what's the truth, what will accomplish something. They're using their words as, a, as technology to get... Uh, their will accomplished in this moment. But if you ask them in private, if you ask them in another moment, they would want there to be a renewed son of David sitting on the throne if he came in their way. If he came with military power and could really get the Romans out and he could set up a big government and they could have their prominent place within that government, they would want that. So this is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate's trying to let Jesus go, but the Jewish leaders keep shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. I don't see how you can reconcile that with the messianic expectation, but they somehow are saying that. We hear it from John's gospel. They knew here how to manipulate Pilate. Okay. Um, Craig Keener says in his commentary, Roman law didn't take silence as an admission of guilt. So if you didn't say anything, that didn't necessarily mean that you were admitting that you were guilty of whatever the charge was. Jesus, he didn't say anything in response to some of Pilate's questions. But that didn't mean that he was guilty. But without a defense, um, without a defense, a defendant would be convicted by default. In other words, if you just stood there and said nothing and nobody else came to your defense, then 
the typical response was guilty. So Jesus saying nothing knew exactly what he was doing. Do you understand that he's nobody's coming to his defense? Where are his disciples? Hiding, okay? It seems that John might be somewhere nearby, and he seems to be the only one that's even willing to get anywhere close to this whole thing. But he's not going to step up and be a def, uh, on the defense side because that could cost him as well. And perhaps in the providence of God, um, he never felt compelled to do that. I don't know. But uh, he would be convicted. Jesus would be convicted by default. In any case, the issue with Pilate is no longer guilt or innocence, but he's beginning to weigh the religious and political consequences of these decisions that he has to make. He's not just thinking in terms of whether Jesus is guilty or innocent. He's now thinking about survival. And uh, this whole thing about friend of Caesar probably triggered something in him. Keener says the emperor Tiberius was suspicious of the least talk of treason. And a delegation to Rome providing the slightest evidence that Pilate had supported a self-proclaimed king could lead to Pilate's beheading. Do you know Pilate's not going to be crucified unless he's considered an insurrectionist? If he dies as a Roman citizen, it's probably going to be, they're going to behead him for that. And here's what else is interesting. I didn't, I didn't know this, but uh, the phrase friend of Caesar may be an allusion to an honorific imperial title that was given to senators who were chosen by the emperor. And uh, Roman sources tell us that Pilate had gained Tiberius' favor and become a friend of Caesar through the good graces of a Sejanus. Have you heard of Sejanus before? Sejanus is a highly placed imperial official. And during a palace purge in Rome, Sejanus, who was uh, close to Caesar, was removed and executed along with many of his supporters. And so depending on when you date the crucifixion, this is probably a little bit later date than I would uh, think it is, but it's still a possibility, that depending on when you date the crucifixion, this could have been a reason for Pilate to be nervous during this time, anybody who's related in any way to Sejanus. And so Pilate and Caiaphas, if that had happened up to this point, they both would have known that. They would have known about this, and Caiaphas could have known that this would be a way to compel Pilate to do something. You're no friend of Caesar, and I'm telling you that would make Pilate nervous. Pilate would have been highly in a highly precarious position at this point because of his connection to Sejanus. His life may have even been in some danger when Jesus appeared before him. In these circumstances, a show of disloyalty by failing to deal firmly with a revolutionary would challenge the rule of Caesar, and it might be the final nail in his coffin. A whisper in the right ears, Pilate's a dead man. And so here's the point that I wanted to make in this, is that they know how to coerce Pilate. Even if this hasn't happened yet, the Sejanus thing, they still know, Pilate knows, if somebody accuses him of being on the wrong side of Caesar, not being loyal to Caesar, uh, he would either lose his job or lose his head. And so they know how to manipulate him in this moment. It says, when Pilate heard this in verse 13, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judge's seat. So he's ready to make a decision at this point. When he heard this, what's the this? You're no friend of Caesar's. 
He's ready to let Jesus go. He's ready to let Jesus go. He's pleading to let Jesus go. He wants to let him go. You're no friend of Caesar's. He goes out and he sits down on the judgment seat. Why? Because he feels that it's either Jesus or him. That's why. So we have in verse 16 the sentencing that takes place here. In Pilate's mind, it may have come down to him or me. And this really, to me, puts Jesus in a place of highly symbolic significance that we know is true in a broader sense. But think of this. In verse 40 of chapter 8, Jesus is going to be the substitute who will die instead of Barabbas. Right? Is it going to be Jesus or Barabbas? Let us have Barabbas crucify Jesus. Is Barabbas innocent of his crimes or guilty? He's guilty. Is Jesus innocent of his crimes or guilty? He's innocent. Okay. We have an innocent substitute for a guilty man. In uh, chapter 11, verse 49, um, chapter 18, verse 14, it refers to a prophecy that Caiaphas gave. Do you, does anybody remember what the prophecy of Caiaphas was? That better that one man die than that the whole nation perish. So I would suggest to you that at the forefront of John's mind here too is that he's going to die in the place of a nation. Okay? It's Jesus or the nation. It's Jesus or the nation. It's Jesus or Barabbas. It's Jesus or the nation. Can you see that? We're getting set up here for substitution. Okay? And then in chapter 19, verse 13 through 16, it's not said in as plain of language, but if you know the backstory, you can infer it which is this, it's Jesus or Pilate, okay? You either kill Jesus or we're going to get rid of you. Do you see that? If he's feeling coerced, if he's feeling his life is being threatened, if he doesn't do something, you're no friend of Caesar's. If you let him go, then in Pilate's mind, it's either Jesus or him. So we have substitution appearing again, Jesus or Pilate, Jesus or Barabbas, Jesus or the nation, Jesus or Pilate. And then, of course, we know he died for us too. John 3, 16, he, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. First John 2, 2, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. First John 2, 2. Who wrote First John, by the way? Anybody know? <laughs> Same John that wrote the gospel? Yeah. Revelation? Yeah. So he's got this on his mind, Jesus as the atoning sacrifice, as a substitution for us. So Pilate brings him out, sits down on the judgment seat, and he issues his decree. Where are we here in verse... Well, verse 13, Pilate heard this. He brought Jesus out. He sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here's your king. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? And this, to me, says it all. We have no king but Caesar. What do we do when somebody challenges our personal kingdom? 
Do you see? Do you, do you see the reality of what's taking place here? Is Jesus is the King, and if we're going to fight for our own kingdom, we're going to fight it against Him. And what the crucifixion shows us is how far humanity will go to keep its own kingdoms in place. We'll even take God to the cross. So, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. They don't want to follow Caesar, but they'd rather follow Caesar in their present positions of power than to follow Jesus and surrender to him. Shall I do to your king? Take him away. Crucify him. Crucify your king. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Pilate's decree was legally binding in all capital cases. He didn't even have to accept the recommendation of his uh, counselors. There were counselors that he could talk with and ask them their advice. He was authorized to judge in all cases regarding public order, even if no specific laws have been violated. And so he sends Jesus to the cross. What I see here is the innocence of the Savior and therefore the perfect blameless sacrifice. And what John wants us to understand is that Jesus is the innocent sacrifice that we need to believe in. He wants us to know that. He is innocent in our place. And what he wants us to see that this is God's plan for salvation, that this didn't happen by accident. This was by God's design and it was for his purpose. To the suffering Christian, he wants to show us that the world doesn't see God's purposes the way that they are, that we may have to suffer for a while, and uh, to show us how we ought to live for Christ in the midst of that. Because Jesus is the rightful king, but he suffered. John writing to Christians much later, and if we accept the date of John as somewhere around the same time of as a Revelation, you remember in Revelation the seven churches of Asia were suffering, and John was uh, the apostle to that area. And so he knows that these are suffering Christians. And one thing he wants to encourage them with, I think we can understand this from the cultural context. He wants to encourage them that, yes, the world also rejected your Messiah, and so they're going to reject you. But hold on, because the proper king is vindicated, just as he was when he was raised from the dead. And he will be vindicated again, and so will you if you stand in him. Peter tells us, and Peter uh, is dealing a lot with the same churches. It talks about suffering. It says in First Peter chapter two, verse twenty-one: "To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. He committed no sin; no deceit was in His mouth. When they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly." He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. There's a proper way to respond, and Jesus shows us the glory of suffering in the right kind of way, trusting in God that he will vindicate the righteous. And I hope you see the glory in this. This isn't a defeat. I remember in Bible college, we heard about a church in Michigan that they were going to take all the crosses down out of their church. And the reason they were going to do that is because the cross, in their estimation, is a symbol of defeat. 
And I want to tell you it's not. The cross used to be a symbol of defeat until Jesus died on it and rose again. And now it's a symbol of victory. Victory over the grave. Victory over sin. Victory over Satan. We have victory because of what Jesus has done. And so as we think about this story, we can think about it not just as something awful. It is awful. But it's also glorious because of what Christ has done with it. There's poetic beauty in the story of the cross. And it's not just a myth. It happens to be true. Amen? Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your attention tonight as we studied through this story. Lord, tonight we want to more fully appreciate what you've done for us. And that may even be an understatement. We want to live in light of the cross. We want to live in light of the punishment that you took. And we pray that you help us to see the the application from your standing before the world's court, both Jewish and Gentile, and having answered correctly and having at times when it's appropriate to have not said anything but to take the worst the world could throw at you and you overcame. And I pray you help us to see that we're not victims in this world because we're followers of the the victor, of Christ the victor. And I pray that you help us to see that, not to live as defeated victims in this world, even if we we feel that the, the media is against us or the tide of our cultural morals is turning uh, away from Christianity, even if we feel that uh, the threat of our education system to teach the next generation a different way of living, even if we sense that, Lord, I pray that you help us to stand up and to know that you will overcome to know that your kingdom will prevail, to do all that we can to live for you in a way that honors and glorifies you. I pray, Jesus, that we help you help us to see the victory that we have in Christ, in Jesus' name. And Lord, help us uh, as we witness to others to remember the glory of what you've done, the beauty of what you've done, as we tell the people the beauty of the gospel. We pray in your name. Amen. 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 Thanks for being here tonight. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.